Uh, before we uh, jump into the message, I want to take a moment for everybody here in London and Williamsburg and uh, all of you that are meeting as part of our core group in Middlesbrough and, of course, for Somerset. Today is a big day for our church because, uh, some of you may not know this, today is the 10th anniversary of the Creek Church Somerset. So can we show them some love and let them know that we are celebrating with them and happy for them? Yeah, Wow. It's hard for me to believe that it's been that long. You know, campuses are kind of like kids for me these days. I can't believe they're as old as they are. It's like, where did the time go? But it, it seems like it was just yesterday that we had our first night in the Center for Rural Development. And I'll never forget being there in that room that night. And there was one particular moment among many moments that, that stick out in my mind uh, still today. And it was when uh, Austin and I were, we were sitting beside of each other and we looked up behind us and there was just this huge crowd there, you know, that was there out of curiosity and this launch. And some of you here in London, or maybe even those of you in Williamsburg may have been there that night, uh, way back then. And we just kind of looked at each other and smiled and we were like, oh my goodness, this is, this is incredible. And now 10 years later, you have your own building. Uh, hundreds of lives have been changed and it really is just an awesome thing to watch. And, and we're all convinced uh, with you uh, and convinced on your behalf uh, for you that the best is yet to come. That's why our church continues to pray, God, give us Kentucky. Uh, by the end of this year, we'll have four churches, and I'm expecting and hopeful that by uh, 2024, uh, we'll have six churches uh, under the Creek Church banner. So thank you, Somerset, for allowing God to use you and reminding all of us that what we're doing uh, and what we're trying to do, it's working. So thank you for making a difference. Can we put our hands together one more time for them? Congratulations, yeah. Now, <clears throat> I love a good movie. Uh, sometimes I, I love a decent movie, but I really love good movies. Uh, matter of fact, I'm one of those people that have so many favorite movies, there is no way it would be absolutely impossible for me to like narrow down my favorite movies into the top 10. And I, I tried, uh, I, I was thinking about it, and I, I imagined for a moment that you were asking me to give you my top 10. And one, I want to thank you for caring and asking. And uh, the second thing is, I, I thought about it, and I said, you know what, I, I would definitely put The Godfather, you know, the, no, it's a trilogy. It's three, but it's really one. It's kind of like the Trinity. Uh, so, you know, you've got three, but it's one, the Godfather. And then the same goes for the Lord of the Rings. Uh, it's a three, but it's one. Uh, for me, Les Mis certainly is, gosh, I just love that movie. I could watch it over and over again. Field of Dreams, build it, and he will come. Uh, it's incredible. Braveheart. You know, some that I think pretty sure I know would be on the top 10. And Allison told me last night, she goes, well, I think, you know, favorite movies are one of, the, it's those movies that you can't pass up on you know, whenever you see it on, well, that's the case. And it's Christmas vacation. I can't pass that up. I don't care if it's in July or December. It doesn't matter to me. And, and then I know some of you guys are going to be upset with this and you're going to think less of me, but that's okay. I can't pass up Twilight, any of the movies. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I mean, day one, I, I was team Edward from the day one. I'm not for that dog, Jacob. And it's like, you know, I just love it. I mean, I don't care which one it is or what part. Of, I just, it's like I, can't stop. And I just end up watching it. So I don't know, you know, but when it comes to great movies, there's just so many of them and you've got some, but here, here's what I want you to think about. Great movies deserve great trailers, you know, great previews, you know, uh, back in the day, I feel like, you know, you know, you, they would have these epic narrations uh, of videos uh, when I was a kid giving previews to movies. And, and now it's kind of changed because you can get them on YouTube and you can get them at the theater. And, and sometimes they even air on television, but great movies deserve great 
trailers. However, this is not always the case. Recently, our family watched this movie, uh, Bridge to Terabithia. How, how many of y'all seen this movie? Anybody? Okay. All right. Well, it, it's, a, it's a good movie. It's a great movie, but, and, and it looks fun, right? I mean, look at that. There's creatures. There's a gate. It's majestic. It's magical. There's a castle. I, I mean, it's Disney. There's friends. There's all this stuff, and it, it looks lighthearted. It looks like an adventure. And the trailer's the same. You watch the trailer, and it's like, hey, two kids right here. Two kids venture into the forest and discover a fantasy world called Terabithia. And it's like, oh, this is going to be great. It's Disney. It's Terabithia. There's two kids. You know, this is great. This is what we're going to do for Friday night movie night. And and so then we watched the movie because, you know, what's not going to be fun about that? But here's a spoiler alert in case you haven't watched it and you want to watch it. So just plug in for the next 30 seconds. When you watch the movie, you find out it's about a dead kid who left his friend behind drowning in grief and guilt. Fala la la la. And so we watched this movie and it was like you find out the whole thing's just kind of an imagination that's born out of guilt and all of this and tragedy. And I'm telling you, the family, my family, we were a mess. I I mean, we needed a counselor. We needed the pastor to come visit us, but we didn't have a pastor. I am the pastor, so there was no one to call. And it was just, I mean, it was was horrible. I mean, it was great, but it was horrible. And, And it was like the trailer people said, hey, let's sucker them in. Let them get their popcorn and their drinks and then let's make them cry, gut-wrenching, painful tears. And, and so that was it. And, but the trailer did its job because we watched the trailer, then we watched. But then there's movies, you know, that just have what I would call epic trailers that when, when, when you see it, it's like, oh my gosh. And then you watch the movie and it kind of, kind of rivals it. And, and it's almost everything that you expected. And, and the one that came to mind, I, I could camp out on this all day um, and, and develop a whole stand-up act around it, but I, I won't do that. But uh, back in the summer of 99, summer of 99, uh, some of you were, were summering back in 99. Some of you haven't suffered, summered in a long time, but I remember summering in 99 and uh, there was a movie came out. How many of y'all remember this movie, Blair Witch, the Blair Witch Project? Now, I'm telling you, that movie was horrifyingly disturbing in a really gratifying kind of way. Uh, now, I'll tell you, when I, saw the, when I saw the trailer, and I was going to show the trailer today, but I couldn't because it would kick Facebook off, and we love our Facebook watchers, and so we didn't want to take a risk at that. But on the trailer, it came up with, you know, just these scenes. It looked like it was just filmed, you know, like a documentary, and, and that's the way the, the whole thing was set up. And, and it tells you that back in 1994, three filmmakers went to Burkittsville, Maryland, and they were never seen again. And a year later, their footage was found. And, and there's all these news clips and paper clippings about was it the occult or was it some type of paranormal supernatural thing? Well, for a sheltered church kid who had grown up in that world all my life, I'm telling you, I went into that movie absolutely terrified. I was like, oh my God, devil worshipers? Was it, was it the, the devil himself? You know, what are we going to see on this? And you know, it was just, I was just sitting there the whole time. And then after the movie, I mean, I'm just like, oh my gosh, what is this all about? And and then I get out there in the lobby and my friend says, gosh, what a great concept for a movie. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, the whole thing's just a fabricated storyline and and it was meant to look real, but it's not real. And I was like, you gotta be freaking kidding me. I, I mean, I've sat there and just about died for this whole movie and I thought the whole thing was real, but looking back, I think, man, that movie trailer was, was epic. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. It, it gave me a preview, it gave me a snapshot, it got me there, it had me, it had me hooked, it had me committed. And that's what movie trailers do. They, they give us a sneak peek, that's how they work. Uh, they give us a preview, a, a glimpse 
of, of something we've not seen yet. But, but the preview wants to tell us something about what we've not seen yet. To tell us enough about it that we want to see it, that we want to experience it. So, so movie trailers are there to capture our attention, to ignite our curiosity, to, to get us to believe that, hey, if I go see this, if I wait for this, if I, if I go through all the, you know, the energy and spend the money to get there, it's going to be worth it. And, and then I get to look forward to it. And, and that's how movie trailers work. And every great movie deserves a great movie trailer. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, there was a version of movie trailers that existed for century after century after century. Uh, they were called prophets. And, and the prophets would show up and the prophets would lift up their voice and with oratory, they would paint pictures and, and they would give a sneak peek uh, of the future to come. They would use their words to paint a canvas to say, this is what you've not experienced yet. This is what you've not seen yet with your eyes, but we wanna give you a preview of things to come. And sometimes the prophets would show up and it would be a little bit bleak, but here's the great thing and one of the misunderstandings that people have about the Old Testament. The Old Testament is really not a downer of a message. Uh, the Old Testament is just not negative Nancy type of literature. The Old Testament, even though the prophet showed up sometimes and said, hey, the immediate future, is bleak, but the prophets were all in agreement to say that there is even a greater picture beyond the bleak, which is a picture of hope. And they would show up and they would say, hey, the best is yet to come. It may get harder before it gets better, but the best is yet to come. Now, if you don't remember anything else I say today, perhaps you should just remember that or write that down. It may get harder before it gets better, but the best is yet to come. And so the prophets would say, there's more to the story than what you can see. There's more to the story than what you can currently hear. And what feels like an ending, uh, what feels like an ending is really just a beginning. Now, one of my favorite Old Testament prophets was Isaiah. And, and Isaiah, he, he was he was such a great writer. He, he was, you know, I, I believe him to be such a great speaker because he, he really commanded the attention of, of people in his generation. And, and Isaiah, he was a historical figure in Israel about 700 years before uh, what we read about Jesus when that took place in, in the pages of the New Testament. So there's about seven, 700 years between Isaiah and Jesus. Well, Isaiah, he, he's a prophet and he would often articulate a future that the people hadn't seen yet in order to give them a preview of coming attractions. And so uh, in one particular instance, he captures uh, really how the prophets worked collectively and how the Old Testament works collectively as a whole. And so he, he writes about one particular uh, period in Israel's history when Jerusalem lay in waste. Uh, the city is destroyed. The ancient landmarks are in ruins. The temple is decimated. And in the present moment, there's pain. In the present moment, there's fear. In the present moment, there's suffering. But he says, even though the future seems uncertain and the future seems dark and the future seems dismal and the future seems like it's something to dread, Isaiah says, and then he paints a picture and he writes a poem. He, he writes a poem about a watchman on the wall. And in those days, there would be watchmen on the wall who would look for people coming toward the city, whether it would be armies or whether it would be a visitor or whether it would be a dignitary or whether it would be an ambassador from another kingdom. And he says, the watchmen are on the wall. And in the distance, the watchman sees someone running towards the city of God. Someone's running towards the city of Jerusalem. And this messenger is carrying with him 
news about the future. News about the future, even though the city is destroyed and the glory of God has departed and the people are oppressed, there is a messenger on the way and his message is the Lord is on his way back to Jerusalem. And this watchman, he sees the Lord, the Lord himself is on his way back with good news in his hand. And the good news is that though you are defeated, victory is on the way. And though you are oppressed, freedom is on the way. And though you feel as though you are surrounded by darkness, death, or light rather, is on the way. And though there is death in the city, life will come to the city once again. So sing. What? So sing. Sing songs of joy. Not because, listen to this. Sing songs of joy not because of how things are but because of how things one day will be. See, the people of God, people of faith, both Old Testament and New Testament, we have never been a people who are to sing songs of joy because of the way things are. We have been called to sing songs of joy because of the way things will be. And so Isaiah, he paints this picture and then he says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. The good news of peace and salvation. The news that the God of Israel, he reigns. That's kingdom language. The watchmen shout and sing with joy. Not because of the way things are. For before their very eyes, they see the Lord himself returning to Jerusalem. It was good news. And the good news was the king is coming. And this good news all throughout the Old Testament would require faith. Faith is simply confidence that God is who he says he is. He's gonna do what he says he will do. Faith, beyond that, faith accepts that there's another reality beyond the reality that I can place my hands on. Beyond what I can see, beyond what I can taste, beyond what I can hear, beyond what I can smell, beyond all three-dimensional reality that's around all of us. Faith believes, people of faith, we believe that there is another realm of reality that exists beyond the current news cycle, beyond economics, beyond politics, beyond wars and rumors of wars. We believe there's another realm of reality beyond the reality that we are constricted with seeing and hearing and experiencing today. And people of faith believe that God's promises one day will become ultimate reality and it will happen in God's good time. But until then, we know that there's a reality yet to come. There's a reality that around us that is beyond what we can see and experience. But even though this good news would require faith, this good news would bring hope. And that's what the prophets were trying to do. They were trying to bring hope when people needed it most. Uh, I've never met uh, anybody who's had too much hope. You know, how you doing, brother? I'll tell you what, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I have too much hope. I don't know what to do. I've never met anybody who has more hope than they know what to do with. Hope is what keeps us from losing faith. Hope is what keeps us from retreating and losing ground. Faith is what keeps us, or hope rather, is what keeps us from giving in to fatalism. Or it's all going to hell. It's all terrible. It's, it's, just, it's just one bad thing after another. Just fatalism. It's not going to get any better. It's just, it's just terrible. Or cynicism. Or fear. Or dread. It's hope that keeps us away from those things. Hope is what gives us an anchor that keeps us tethered in, in the worst of storms. 
Uh, Hope is what allows us to face reality with steel in our spines. We do not cower down, we do not back up, but, but we stand up and we look reality in the face, as ugly as it may be, because hope is what's gonna help us endure suffering when we can't escape it. <laughs> now, let me say, we hope to escape it, but when you can't escape it, it's hope that will allow you to endure it. Hope believes that there is a reality coming that isn't yet reality, that allows us to have joy in the face of our current reality. Let me say that again. Hope believes, hope believes that there is a reality that isn't yet reality, that one day will be reality, that offers me joy in the face of whatever my current reality is. Hope isn't a kind of put my head in the sand, I got you know, kind of a pie in the sky type of faith. That's not hope at all. Hope doesn't ignore what we can see. But here's good news. Hope also can't ignore what we can't see. Hope believes that all of reality is moving in the direction of God's promises. Now, today we are in part five of this series called The Kingdom. And for the past few weeks, we have been talking about the kingdom of God because Jesus talked about the kingdom of God more than anything else. Last week, we saw that when Jesus emerged from the wilderness, having faced sin, remaining sinless, Jesus at that point began to preach publicly. He came out of the wilderness. He faced sin. He remained sinless, and then he began to preach. And Matthew put it this way again. Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And the word was, the news was, the king had come. The prophet said the king is coming, but Jesus showed up to say the king has come. This good news that Jesus brought would also require faith and it would also bring hope. What Jesus was saying was the day that the prophets had spoken of, that day has dawned. The day that Isaiah spoke of, that there was one coming, how beautiful is his feet who comes carrying good news. It was Jesus who stepped onto the pages of history carrying good news that the light of that day had began to shine and the people who sat in darkness had started to see a great light. And Jesus was announcing with this declaration that the kingdom of God had come near. Now, we're going through the gospel of Matthew and I hope you're spending some time on your own through the week just reading through the gospel of Matthew. It's it's a great read, but I hope you're picking up filters about how to read through it. For the rest of Matthew, in chapter one, he he told us that the king is born. In chapter, you know, two and three, he's telling us about a king is announced and he tells us that a king is tested. And now he begins to tell us the rest of that story. The introduction is kind of, you know, he's got that out of the way. He set the groundwork, he set the framework. And so for the next, you know, chapters of Matthew, for all the remaining chapters of Matthew, he's gonna tell us about the public message and the public ministry of Jesus. The public message and the public ministry of Jesus. And so he says, Jesus came out of the wilderness. He faced sin. He remained sinless. He preached, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. He moved his center of operations to Capernaum. People in darkness saw a great light. And then he says, Jesus. Jesus went throughout Galilee. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming, listen to the language, the good news of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Jesus goes from village to village and town to town, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. 
And while he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, he says that he's healing all types of disease and sickness. Now, what's interesting is of what Matthew does as a writer, as a person who obviously had a knack for writing and who used all kinds of creative means to tell this story that sometimes we just read past. In the next few chapters, chapter five, six, and seven, that's the Sermon on the Mount. We'll talk about that next week. That, that highlights the teaching ministry of Jesus, this, this verbal proclamation that the kingdom of God has come near. And, and in 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about the values and, and the ethic of the kingdom, and that's important, so don't miss next week. But in chapters 8 and 9, it's like Matthew just throws up as much stuff in those, in those two chapters, not chronologically, but just throws in as much stuff that he can to tell us about the ministry of Jesus, that Jesus... He healed all sicknesses and diseases throughout all these towns and villages and and that he was a miracle worker. Then, this is what Jesus said in Matthew 4.23. I want you not to miss that. In Matthew 4.23, this is how he introduces this next literary section of his gospel. But then, at the end of chapter 9, look at what he uses to close out that section. It's almost the same words, verbatim. Jesus went throughout Galilee proclaiming in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. So he ends the section the same way that he started the section. And the reason that he does that is he draws attention to the ministry and to the teaching of Jesus, both to the healing and to the teaching, to the miracles and to the words that Jesus spoke. His point is this. Let me that Jesus was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom with both his teaching as well he was also proclaiming and demonstrating the good news of the kingdom by healing sickness and disease. He was proclaiming the kingdom, he was demonstrating the kingdom. So let me tell you a question that I want us to wrestle with just for a moment because this kind of, this lands, this is kind of like a parentheses type of sermon before we go on to the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, but I feel like this is so important and I'm so excited about what I'm about to tell you that I just want to hurry up and tell you, but I got to tell you some things before I tell you, so just hold on a minute. I know you're impatient. I know, so just hold on a minute. Next week, we'll talk about his teaching, but today I want to ask this question based on what Matthew's trying to do. Why did Jesus perform miracles? Why did Jesus perform miracles? You ever thought about it? Why? What's that all about? Why did Jesus perform miracles? Were they just random acts of kindness? Because that's sometimes how we were taught. Were they just random acts of kindness? And Jesus did perform random acts of kindness. And they were random acts of kindness. But was there something more to it? Why did Jesus perform miracles? Why did Jesus heal? What was that all about? Some would say, well, it was to give signs about who he was, to give evidence, and that's what John in his gospel calls it. He calls it the sign miracles, signs that give proof or bring evidence to say Jesus is who he claimed to be. But here's the thing, though that is true in part, but it's not true in a completed way. Uh, Jesus is not the only person recorded in Scripture to do miracles. So it can't be only about that. Elijah and Elisha, uh, they performed all kinds of miracles. There were other people who performed miracles. So the, the miracles that Jesus performed, it just wasn't about saying, I really am who I am, though that was part of it. Or is there something more going on in this story? Is there something more going on with why Matthew tells us this in the way that he tells us? Now, I want you to think about it for a moment. Think about when Matthew is writing the gospel of Matthew. He's writing it after the fact. 
He's writing this after all of this has been said and done. After he heard all the sermons, witnessed all the miracles, after Jesus was arrested, after Jesus was crucified, after his resurrection, of which Matthew was a witness of, and after Jesus had ascended back to God. Some point shortly after that, Matthew sits down and says, the whole world needs to hear this. So he wrote down this account of Jesus's life. So Matthew knows from the beginning, the story that he wants to tell because he already knows the ending. He's not sitting out in the beginning trying to figure out how all this ends. This is not his journal of him writing these things down in real time and at the end of it, it just becomes the gospel of Matthew. This is him sitting down with an intentional perspective with a, potential, with a very particular agenda and context to say, this is why I'm writing what I'm writing. And to me, I think that the miracles are, are part of the reason that he's writing this story because there's something that he's wanting us to know. There's something that he's wanting us to see. There's something else that he's wanting us to understand. It's a question that he's trying to answer. It, it's not the only question, but perhaps it may be the biggest question that he's trying to answer. What does it look like when Jesus rules as king? What does it look like when Jesus rules as king? And that's the story that he's telling. These are just not, hey, I'm going to throw in a story about a miracle. And it's a nice little random act of kindness that tells us who Jesus is. He's telling a story about what it looks like when Jesus rules as king in my life, in your life. But, it, but it's bigger than that. And I would dare say it's better than that. It's just not about what, what does it look like in my life, in your life, when Jesus is king. There is a bigger question at play. It's what does it look like when Jesus becomes king of the world? What does it look like when Jesus becomes king of the cosmos? What does it look like when Jesus becomes king of the earth? And, and so he's writing this to say, I want to show you what it looks like when Jesus is king, not only in your life, not only in my life, but what it will look like when Jesus is king over all the earth. And so Matthew, he knows some things about the kingdom that sometimes we don't know or we've not thought about. He knows that when it comes to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is already, but not yet. When Jesus announced the kingdom of God has come near, in a really real sense, it had. It was near, it was within grasp, it had arrived. But in another equally real sense, there was an aspect of God's kingdom which had not fully arrived. It was still around the corner. It was still around beyond the horizon. It was just out of sight. But yet one day Matthew understood because he knows the full story. He knows that one day the entirety, the totality of God's kingdom would arrive. But until then, the kingdom of God is already, it's already here. But at the same time, there's a part of God's kingdom that it's not yet. The arrival of the spiritual kingdom of God. Jesus would say, my kingdom is not of this world. In many ways, it's the kingdom of the heart. It's a spiritual kingdom, even now. But the arrival of the spiritual kingdom of God shows us that there will be an inevitable arrival of the physical kingdom of God. The, the spiritual kingdom of God that has come. Now, I want you to track with me for just a moment because we're, we're just gonna dive into this for just, and I promise you, you'll be glad that you listen at the end of this. I promise you, I promise you. All right, the spiritual kingdom of God, it showed up and it was a promise, it was assurance that the physical kingdom of God was soon to follow. Now, this physical kingdom of God, some people call it the new Jerusalem. Uh, some people call it the new heavens and the new earth. I prefer, uh, you know, in, in my conversations to call it the new world to come, and I've got my reasons. Uh, some people call it eternity. Eternity. 
What's eternity going to look like? Uh, some people mistakenly, you know, I'll talk about this in just a moment. Some people refer to it as, as heaven, you know, in, in reference to the final state of things. What, what will things be like in the final state of things? When everything is said and done, what's that like? You see, in the spiritual kingdom of God, sins are forgiven. My sins have been forgiven because the king, the lamb of God laid down his life for my sins on the cross in my place. He became sin for me that I could become right with God though he himself knew no sin. In the spiritual kingdom of God, sins are forgiven. But in the physical kingdom of God to come, sin will be obliterated. Sin will be abolished. Sin itself will be destroyed. In the spiritual kingdom, there is the offer of eternal life. There is the water of life, then he or she that drinks it will never die. There is the bread of life. There is the resurrection and the life. And though he die, yet shall he live. And in the spiritual kingdom of God, there is this promise of eternal life, though death is still at play. Some of us have been to funerals just in the last few days. Death is still at play, though eternal life is a reality. But in the physical kingdom of God, death itself is destroyed. Death itself is abolished forever. So there is this, this difference between the spiritual kingdom of God and the reality that is now and the physical kingdom of God and the reality that one day is to come. And in the Old Testament, these prophets, these, these people who would paint these previews of coming attractions, they wrote about the kingdom of God. And most of the time they were writing about the final state of the kingdom of God. They were writing about when the culmination of the kingdom of God is completely realized. Isaiah would say things like this. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. How does that happen? Because it seems like the natural order of things have been turned upside down or perhaps things have been restored to their original intent. The original natural order of things where there is no predatory instinct, that there is an instinctive peace even between animals that are now seen as prey and predator in their relationship. One day they said the wolf will lie down with the lamb because something on the earth has changed. Something on this planet has changed. The leopard will lie down with the goat and the calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. A little child will play with these animals that we would dare not ever think a little child should be around because something has changed. There's been an arrival of a new reality. The cow will feed. With the bear, their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and the infant will play near a cobra's den. Parents, can you imagine? Honey, what are you doing? Playing with some snakes. Okay, have fun. Because something has changed in, in this literature, this imagery, this, this preview of coming attractions. It didn't make sense to a lot of people. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest and they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth. For the earth, the physical earth, this, this earth that we're on right now will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah would go on and say, in that day, the root of Jesse or the offspring or the descendant of, of David's kingdom will stand as a banner for all the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. Isaiah says in another place, in those days, he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many people. And listen to this. This is a timely word. Don't miss this. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will no longer take up sword against nation, nor will they train or study war anymore because something has changed. Something has shifted. There will be no wars or rumors of wars. 
Nations will lay aside those weapons. Weapons will be destroyed because in that reality, no weapon is needed because it's only perfect peace. Ezekiel came along and said, this is what the sovereign Lord says on that day. Out there in the future, I will cleanse you from all of your sins. I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt and the desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. And listen, this is, this is so good. Don't, don't miss this. They will say, this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. Because the storyline of scripture is that what Adam gave up in Eden in Genesis 3, there would be another Adam that would come a king who would come, who would regain everything that Adam forfeited in the Garden of Eden. And the perfection of the garden would one day out there somewhere be reinstated. It would be renewed. It would be reality once again. <laughs> the cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you will remain that will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed. I've replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, has spoken and I will do it. Ezekiel goes on and he talks about a day when the salt waters turn fresh, when the desert will bloom. Amos talked about a day when all the walls that have been torn down will be rebuilt, when the reapers will be overtaken by the plowmen. There'll not be enough people to harvest. The growth will take, fast, take place faster than actual seeding of the ground. That wine's gonna flow from the mountains and it was all a picture of this glorious kingdom to come. Isaiah says in Isaiah 35 that when the king comes, he's coming to save, to open up blind eyes, to give words to those who can't speak and the lame will leap like a deer and those who are mute will sing songs of joy and streams will gush from the desert and flow into the wastelands and sand will become pools of fresh water. And in those days, Isaiah says in 35, that there'll be no sorrow, there'll be no mourning. All danger disappears. The problems of human society solved. No acts of diplomacy needed for peace rules the world. Isaiah said, let me just say it this way. See, I, I will create a new heavens and a new earth, says the Lord, and the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And the prophets spoke these things century after century after century after century, giving a, a preview of coming attraction. So when Matthew says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogue, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. The good news that Jesus was preaching included the promises of the prophets. The good news that Jesus preached about the kingdom involved all of those promises of the fullness of God's kingdom. And this was the backdrop of what Matthew was saying. This was the good news, and I'm afraid. Now, let me just pick at us for just a moment, all right? I'm afraid that in the church, I'm afraid, and I hope not this church, but I'm afraid that in the church, we have reduced this robust, far-reaching implication of Jesus' good news that he preached, and we have reduced it down to the good news is you can go to heaven when you die. What's the good news? Well, you can go to heaven when you die. Hey, do you want to go to heaven when you die? Yeah. What's the alternative? Burn in hell? Yeah, I'm going to go to heaven when I, when I die. That's what I want to do. And depending on what your idea of heaven is, it may not be the greatest news in the world, but it's better than the alternative. A lot of Christians, maybe you, have a Plato-inspired version of heaven in their mind where everything's immaterial. There's lots of white, 
Lots of, you know, lots of clouds. There's the absence of physical suffering. There's an endless worship service. And again, depending on what kind of church you're in, that is not always a great idea. Some of you can barely make it 75 minutes. And then the preacher gets up and says, we're gonna worship for all of eternity. And all the men are thinking, oh my God. Woo, okay, I gotta get, okay, I'm ready. I can do it, I can do it. I'm gonna sit back in the back and grip my teeth. I'll be able to do it. It's better than burning. It's better than burning. Or, you know, ideas of heaven, we're not gonna know anybody and God Almighty. That's an introvert's nightmare. I mean, are we just gonna walk around for all of eternity? Hey, who are you? What's your name? Can, can, can I, will you introduce you? Oh, wow. It's like, what? And all these crazy cookie images and ideas that are so foreign from what we read about. Too many Christians, and I may mess some of you up right now, too many Christians believe that we're gonna live forever in heaven. And we're not. We, we missed the point of the scriptures. If, if that's the good news, if that's the extent of the good news, we have forfeited so much good in the good news. Christians for, for, confuse what's called the intermediate state. Let me just teach for just a moment. An intermediate state. For Christians who die right now, Paul said, absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. So when my grandfather died back in November, he, he knew Christ. I believe that he's in the presence of God even now. He, he's in that place where the presence of God is with people like your moms and your dads, your brothers, your sisters, your sons and your daughters, your friends, the intermediate state. But that's not the final state of things. Matthew watched Jesus die, come back from the dead, ascend, but then promised to come again. And he understood that when Jesus would come at the second coming, it would be then that the kingdom of God would be fully realized and all the promises of God would become reality. And so the rest of the New Testament and the rest of Matthew is always this, the best is yet to come. And he wrote the gospel with this in mind, the best is yet to come. Jesus came the first time to inaugurate the kingdom. He's coming the second time to consummate the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom just isn't that Jesus is savior of the world. The good news of the kingdom is that Jesus is king of the world. So here's what I wanna leave us maybe with a new perspective of how to read the rest of the gospel. Why did Matthew tell us in such a clear way that Jesus went about not only teaching and proclaiming the good news, but demonstrating it with healing those who were diseased and sick? What if every miracle Jesus performed is really just a preview of the kingdom of God to come? What if every miracle that I read about in Matthew and Luke and Mark, and John. What if every miracle I read about is just not a miracle that Jesus performed in the life of someone else? What if it's actually a promise to me? What if it's actually a promise to you? What if it's actually the assurance of what the new world to come is going to be like? What the kingdom of God will be like when it fully comes? Jesus, he preaches those words and the first place that he goes is Cana. It's the first miracle that he performed, John chapter two. He turns water to wine. If you're hardcore Baptist, water to juice, water to juice. That's what it was, water to juice. You remember the story? He, he goes and he goes to this party and there's all this celebrating, this wedding feast. And all of a sudden they ran out of wine. And Mary, she wanted a glass of Cabernet. So she looked at Jesus and said, do something. They're out of wine. 
And, and so they talk with each other. And so you do what your mama tells you to do. And so Jesus said, take those six water pots. And, and there were all kinds of layers of meaning, these ceremonial washing pots that were part of the law. And Jesus was telling us in, in one way that the law was being done away with, an old covenant was being done away with, a new covenant was being brought into effect. But, but there was more to it than that. The water in those big containers become wine. And the wine was taken to the master of ceremonies and he takes a drink and he goes up to the groom says, bro, you had this? I'll tell you, most people, they're so cheap. They give the best wine first because after a while, people lose their discriminating palates and they don't care what you serve them. Juice, juice, some of you getting straight. And, and you know how people do that? But you've saved, you've saved the best wine till last. And the party and the celebration kicked up. What if among the many implications of that story was a picture of the future kingdom of God to come where every distress turns to delight and every grief turns to glory and in the kingdom of God, Jesus will save the best for last where we will gather around tables and we will feast with people we love and we will laugh and tell stories with unspeakable joy and celebrate life on a level that we could never fathom nor anticipate. What if it was a picture of the kingdom to come? What if when you read Matthew and you read about Jairus' daughter who died, can you imagine your daughter, your son dying? Can you imagine getting into that emotional place of what it would be like to watch your child be sick and then die? I mean, it, broke, it breaks my heart to see the kids of Ukraine right now and, and, and my heart just breaks and those are not even my children, but to know the pain. And as Jarius, he leans over the bed of his daughter who's taken her last breath and, and that cry that you don't know is in there until it comes out. That mourn, that wail that's birthed out of unspeakable love and unspeakable grief. And he says goodbye to a daughter. And then Jesus comes and walks up to his daughter and says, daughter, wake up. She wakes. And Jairus grabs his daughter. And I imagine he held her as tight as he had ever held her before in an embrace that he didn't care how long it had lasted. And what if, as amazing of a miracle that was, what if it's a picture? What if it's a promise to us that one day we will be reunited with those that we've said goodbye to in death? Those that we love, those sons, those daughters, that mother, that father, that grandfather, that grandmother, that best friend, that little brother, that big sister. What if it was a picture that one day there will be an embrace where we won't care how long it lasts? He heals a woman who bled for 12 years what if it was a picture of a kingdom to come where there is no chronic illness, there is no chronic disease, there is no pain or diabetes or multiple sclerosis or ulcerative colitis. There's none of those chronic things that hold people back and are a part of their life constantly that in the kingdom of God to come, there is no chronic pain or illness. He heals a man with leprosy, maybe as a picture that in the kingdom of God to come, there's no stigmas 
There's no deformities that cause anybody to be outcasted. Everybody's touchable. Everybody's invited in. Everybody gets to sit at the table. Nobody's marginalized in the kingdom to come. A Roman officer comes up and says, Jesus, my servant is sick. They're gonna die if you don't show up. And Jesus said, I've not had this kind of faith shown to me in all of Israel. And the guy said, if you'll just speak it, my servant will be healed. Jesus spoke and the servant was healed and then Jesus turned to his audience and said I'll tell you one day people like him will come from the north and the south and the east and the west and sit down in the kingdom the kingdom of God people we didn't expect I think that's going to be one of the joys of heaven looking across the table thinking really? really? where am I? He was a paralyzed man who jumps for joy. And in that moment, he felt every blessing of what it meant to move and live and breathe. He healed the blind and the mute and the deaf. And maybe, just maybe, it was a picture of what was to come. What if their miracles were your promise, my promise, of a future reality where sin, sorrow, and death is dismantled? Jesus told his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. If I go away, I will come again. And John says, when he does, he said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Listen to these words. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, from God prepared as a bride, beautifully adorned for her husband. That in the new world to come, in the kingdom, there's cities. In those cities, there's music and there's art and there's friendship and there's culture and there's athletic and there's food and there's all the things that we love about this life. In this new city, in this kingdom, there's nations, there's leaders, there's celebration, there's... And John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death. No mourning, no crying or pain for the old order has passed away. He who sat upon the throne said, I am making everything new. Write this down for my words are trustworthy and true. He said, there is a place with no death no mourning, no crying, no sorrow, no death. A place where there is no wrong and everything is right. Where there is no such thing as goodbye. And as Lucy said in the final voyage, you can't even be afraid, even if you try. A kingdom, as C.S. Lewis put it, where we are fully awake, present every single moment, limitless goodness with endless wonder. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And John said, amen, come Lord Jesus. The good news isn't that one day we're gonna leave the earth and go to heaven. The good news is that heaven one day is coming to earth. It is the promise that Jesus will be king over the earth. It's the promise of a new world to come. And again, as Lewis would say, 
here in the shadowlands we live where things are not fully real because we're not fully awake. But in the shadows, we get a glimpse of a perfect world and kingdom to come. One that when we enter the gates of that city, it will feel like home. The place where we've always belonged. And the reason we love the Shadowlands so much, because it's a whisper. It's a preview of what's to come. In a kingdom where no good thing is destroyed. I'll leave you with this and we're going to sing. Nobody maybe has had more influence on my faith than C.S. Lewis. And I, I could not end today without, I could cut it short, but I don't want to cut it short. I want you to hear these words from his last book in the Chronicles of Narnia, the, the final voyage. When he talks about the great promise of Narnia that was spoken before winter fell upon the land, the promise was wrong will be right when Aslan comes inside. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. He looks at Lucy and Peter and Edmund, and he explains to them about where they are and why they're there. And he says, there was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have become, have begun. The dream has ended, says Aslan. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked at them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful, I cannot write them down. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover of the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Whereas Tolkien would say there is a place called heaven where the good here unfinished it is completed and where the stories unwritten and the hopes unfulfilled are continued we may laugh together yet that is the good news of the kingdom your sins are forgiven but one day sin is destroyed the good news of the kingdom is you have eternal life good news of the kingdom is one day death will be destroyed. Heavenly Father, may we be encouraged. May we soak up the truth of your word. May we hear the encouragement, the peace, and the joy that's found in the promise that even though things may get harder before they get better, the best is yet to come. That we look forward with hope, knowing that one day your kingdom will fully come and Jesus, you will be king and everything will be changed 
forever and forever and forever. In Jesus' name.